Welcome to Judges on Judging, a podcast from the Rendell Center for Civics and Civic Engagement. This program is made possible through a partnership with the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. Now, here's your moderator, Judge Marjorie Rendell. Welcome to Judges on Judging, a podcast sponsored by the Rendell Center for Civics and Civic Engagement. I am Marjorie, otherwise known as Midge Rendell. I'm a judge on the United States Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit, and I have been a trial judge. But I'm hoping to educate the next generation of citizens by talking about what judges do, how they decide cases, the laws that are impacting what happens in our courts today, the situations impacting our courts. And today, our conversation is going to be about the impact of the pandemic on our federal court system. I'm a senior judge on the United States Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit, and we handle appeals from the trial courts in Pennsylvania, Delaware, New Jersey, and the Virgin Islands. And I'm happy today to have one of the trial judges from one of those districts, the Eastern District of Pennsylvania, with us today to talk about the effect of the pandemic on the courts. Uh, I bring you Judge Mitchell S. Goldberg, who is a judge on the district court, previously a Court of Common Pleas judge in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, and prior to that, a United States attorney in Philadelphia and also uh, in the district attorney's office and also engaged in private practice. So he comes with a wealth of experience. Judge Goldberg, thanks for being with us today. Thank you for having me. Um, So I think I'll talk a little bit about what's going on in the Court of Appeals and then turn it over to Mitch. I'm Midge and he's Mitch, so don't get confused, uh, to talk a little bit about what's happening in the trial courts. Uh, The Court of Appeals consists of 14 active judges and six senior judges who sit in panels of three to hear argument and decide every appeal that's taken from a trial court in those jurisdictions that I mentioned. So if someone is convicted in Judge Goldberg's court and is not happy, he or she can file an appeal to the Court of Appeals, and my court has to hear that appeal. We sit in panels of three judges, and we do not hear witnesses. We do not have juries. We decide cases based on what we call briefs, and these are written materials that come to us, and the defendant in this case would say, What went on before Judge Goldberg was not right. He didn't admit evidence. He sentenced me incorrectly, et cetera, et cetera. We decide those cases based on written materials and based on what we call oral argument, which is much like you've seen in the Supreme Court. Lawyers come and argue before the panels of three. Now, during the coronavirus, although we've all been inconvenienced by not being able to be in the courthouse, We have managed to continue with our caseload because we still are getting briefs from the lawyers and we are conducting telephonic argument so that a few weeks ago, I and my other two panel members were on a a Zoom meeting, basically, um, having lawyers argue their case before us. And it actually went quite well. Uh, It almost was better than real oral argument because there were no distractions. Um, You listened intently to what the lawyers were saying, and there was much less interruption because, as you can imagine, in those kinds of telephonic situations, you don't want to talk over everyone. So you reserve your questions 
uh, for an appropriate time, if you will. So after the oral arguments, we judges would then confer, not in person, but virtually. And then we and our law clerks, none of whom are in the courthouse, would work on drafting the opinions. And it actually worked quite well. We are ahead of the game in terms of uh, our workload. Uh, and we are actually having what's called an in-bank argument in late June, where there will only be, an in-bank means that a case that probably has been considered by a panel of three, but we think it's important enough for all of the active judges to hear. So there will be 15 judges, uh, 14 active judges and myself, sitting in bank to hear, to rehear a case. Three judges will be on the bench in the courthouse, and the other 12 judges will be appearing telephonically. Uh, and I'm sure there'll be some order of question asking, as is what's happening in the Supreme Court argument, where now Chief Justice Roberts calls on judges, justices, to ask questions. I'm sure we'll do something along those lines. But our workload is proceeding uh, as the Supreme Court's workload is proceeding. Um, but Judge Goldberg, surely in the trial courts, it can't be proceeding business as usual because you work in a courthouse. You work in courtrooms where people need to come and go and juries are impaneled. And on any given Monday with juries being impaneled all over the courthouse, there could be hundreds of people in the courthouse. So tell us, our courthouse is, is basically closed. Um, what is happening? What isn't happening? What are the challenges you face? Well, there's a lot of, there's a lot of them. Judge Rendell, you were a trial judge for some time, so uh, you, can, you can appreciate the challenges. So as a federal district court judge, we do a lot more written work and motion work than state judges. Um, but I'm gonna estimate that 40% of my time is spent in a courtroom. So the, the challenge that, there's so many challenges, but the ones that really stand out are that I cannot proceed with matters where we have to have witnesses. And it's and very- that would be That would be every trial. <laughs> yes. And, and even, even things other than trials, um, like preliminary injunctions or motions to suppress, right. pre-trial matters, Dahlberg hearings. So trial judges a lot of times assess credibility. Most times we assess credibility if we're the fact finder. I haven't waded into the idea of whether I will try to do that vis-a-vis -vis Zoom. Um, I understand from talking to some friends on the Montgomery County Court of Common Pleas and State Court that they are going to proceed with conducting bench trials vis-a-vis -vis Zoom or, or some other modem of, of that kind. Now, what's a bench trial? Uh, a bench trial is a trial where the judge is the fact finder. Usually the jury gets the facts and we say to the jury, members of the jury, figure out who you believe, who you don't believe, look at the body language listen to the answers, listen to the cross-examination, you find the facts, I'll give you the law as a judge, and based on those facts, you render the verdict. A bench trial is where the judge does both. And the parties have waived the right to a jury trial then. They've agreed that it goes before the judge and he does everything. Yes. So the inability for, for me to assess a witness is, is a huge handicap, but, but way, way worse 
uh, and I hate to paint a, a, a dark picture, but it, I think we have, we're going to have some very, very serious challenges is that under the constitution, there, there are two very important uh, edicts. One is that a defendant, a criminal defendant is guaranteed the right to a jury trial. And the other part of, I think, the same amendment, uh, Speedy Trial Act, says that a defendant is entitled to a speedy trial. How we are going to impanel jurors to fulfill that constitutional obligation and give defendants uh, timely trials, I think, is a daunting um, problem. Daunting. And we're trying to figure it out. Our Chief Judge Sanchez has a really good team and he's working with our clerk of court. And I think the idea is just to try to prioritize cases that are older, um, where defendants have been in custody longer, and then designate three courtrooms. And, and this is just a in the works type of thing, but three courtrooms for one trial, as I understand it, it would be one big courtroom to social distance jurors who are going to be selected. One courtroom where you try the case where the jurors would not sit in the jury box next to each other, but dispersed around the courtroom. And then one courtroom where the jurors would deliberate as opposed to being in a very small room. Wow, that's really challenging. But that's something that's being discussed in the federal courts and the state court system as well? That's, that's, that's my understanding, yes. I mean, I, I don't know what what the state court system is, but I know we have, um, our court, is, as, as you probably remember, we have committees and uh, Judge Jeff Schmel is in charge of our jury committee. And he is working, I think, with Washington to try to figure out how we start to do trials. But we're not doing trials. Our chief judge issued an order saying we're not going to even begin to do trials until September. So the backlog is going to be daunting. Well, and if a juror is is brought in and the juror needs to take public transportation and the juror has a heart condition, it's going to be tough to get jurors, even to sit socially distanced apart in those courtrooms, it would seem. So that is a challenge. Now, the, the problem with the backlog is not just that it will clog the court, but as you noted, the Constitution requires a speedy trial. And if the defendant doesn't get a speedy trial then the case normally would be thrown out, correct? The case can't proceed under the Constitution. So something's got to give where speedy needs to be interpreted a little differently. Has any thought been given as to how that's going to be handled? Um, not that I know of. And the only thought, uh, Judge Rendell, I've given to it is that is going to be a very, very difficult issue to grapple with. And... Uh, Part of me would love to be the judge to grapple with it, and part of me would be too intimidated to. So that's in the criminal context. You have speedy trial. But then in the civil context, because we've got two types of trials. We have criminal cases and we have civil cases. And the civil cases are you know, money damages, antitrust cases, uh, things of that, that kind, um, you know, medical malpractice. Now, in those cases, there are statutory statutes of limitation where you know cases have to be brought within a certain time but if there's no courthouse to file your case in um, can can matters be filed even though the courthouse isn't open yes uh, yes the courthouse is is uh, 
particularly with, with the riots that unfortunately just occurred, the, court, the courthouse is, is shut pretty tight presently as we're, as we're talking, but you can still file your case electronically through the electronic filing system. So plaintiff's lawyers looking at deadlines for filing under statutes can still file electronically. Okay. The problem with the civil cases is going to be once we, we wade through the backlog of the criminal cases are going to have to take precedence. And then once we get through those, the civil cases will come next. But you know, when next is, um, we won't even start trials in, until September. And we don't even know if we're going to be able to bring juries in. As you noted, we're only going to be able to do a couple criminal trials at a time. So if I were a civil practitioner and I needed to get a case to trial, I would, I would be concerned. Yeah, yeah. So, but we are all working virtually now or we're working at home or managing to, to do our work thanks to technology. Uh, it is amazing how technology uh, enhances our ability to get our work done. Uh, if we didn't have the internet, um, you know, we all have law clerks, but our law clerks aren't with us. They are not on their uh, computers in chambers, but they can access material at home. And I feel that the, you know, the work that I'm getting from my law clerks virtually is as good, if, if not better, uh, maybe, well, they're young, they don't have young children, so they don't have the distractions that a lot of people a little bit older have at home. Um, but I'm getting really excellent work from them, uh, you know, printing out things and getting everything done. But, and my work continues just as if I were in chambers, but what kinds of things are you able to do and not able to do? Well, obviously you're not able to do trials, but are you seeing things come before you that are unique to the pandemic? A hundred percent. Yes. And, and those are uh, generally released petitions and they are coming in, in two categories. And I, I won't overstate and say we're getting inundated with them, but there's an awful lot of them. And when you say release, release from yeah. where? Release from custody pending a criminal case. Okay. Uh, so someone is is had their bail revoked, they are detained pending trial, or they've been convicted um, and they're waiting a sentencing, or they've been sentenced and they're waiting designation to a federal facility. The release petitions are, are essentially saying, please reconsider my detention. I'm immune compromised in some way, and we're getting a lot of medical records presented to us. I'm older. I'm in the high risk category under the CDC guidelines, and therefore, please release me because prisons are uh, a hotbed for the virus. And um, therefore, my, my safety, my well-being, uh, health is, is at risk. So, so one of those cases that I just had involved someone who, the, the, the ones I've seen involve persons who are above 60 years old with some diagnosed ailment that makes them more susceptible to COVID. But we have to look at that and also look at the, well, is releasing someone from the, the, the prison going to be a danger to the community, both by way of the person's background and you know, have they tested positive? So, I assume that the U.S. Attorney's Office takes a position 
the government says either yay or nay to these, or how, how do you decide, how do you decide this case? You, you can't depose their doctor or um, yeah. how, how do you decide it? It's very difficult. The U.S. Attorney's Office has been very cooperative in agreeing to the admission of medical records. Mm -hmm. um, and I've been able to, to do on-the-record hearings because there's no witnesses involved you know, on Zoom like we're, like we're doing this podcast. The other big form of, of motion that we're getting under the release category is compassionate release petitions. Mm -hmm. And those come after someone has been convicted and typically at the end of their sentence. So I had one so where... So they're in prison. Yes, they're, they're in their prison. Yeah. So very difficult one I had where someone was designated to a prison in California. The name of the facility escapes me, but that prison, uh, it was not disputed, had the largest outbreak of the COVID virus in the country. Wow. And this person was 70 and I think had diabetes and heart problems. So it was very difficult, but um, you know, there's other factors that, that, that we have to look at. And this person had not completed enough of their sentence. Uh, I think only the first third of it. So that, that weighed on me quite a bit. And now does the Bureau of Prisons decide some of those or do they all come to the judge? I, I was confused as to whose jurisdiction. Now the Bureau of Prisons is in the executive branch. So if they were deciding that's in the executive branch has to make that decision. But if it comes to you, it's the judicial branch. What, what, where's the line drawn there? You're exactly right. Um, and your court uh, gave us some pretty clear guidance on that. So for the compassionate release petitions, we, the, the petition has to be first made with the Bureau of Prisons and they have 30 days to decide. If they don't decide, then the defendant can come to the district court and if, if they do decide and decline the compassionate release, the defendant can come to the district court. But your court, the Third Circuit Court of Appeals, gave us very clear guidance and said, trial judges, you have to wait for this 30-day period to run before you can wait into these issues. Was this a recent decision by our court or has that been longstanding? Recent um, within the last, um, I think, four months. Okay. Uh, a decision. I believe your chief judge issued the decision, Chief okay. Judge Smith. So you get up in the morning, you turn on your computer, and <laughs> and there are all these new petitions. Is that pretty much it? I, I wouldn't say there's like one a day, but I'm going <laughs> to just rough out. I've handled or have pending total about 15 of these, and I think that's consistent with the rest of my colleagues. Mm -hmm. So this is where we're sort of, you know, figuring this out as we go along. I mean, back in February, if you would have said to me, you're going you're gonna to be dealing with bail release petitions and compassionate release petitions based on a pandemic, I would have said, what are you talking about? How do you think the lawyers are faring? You know, it's interesting. I was a district court judge and the lawyers would call. They would call us. They would talk to my law clerks. They'd talk to my courtroom deputy. They would call. And the court of appeals, they never call. We never know how they're doing. They, they don't really raise any excuses as to why they can't get a brief file, but it would seem the lawyers must be having challenges during this time as well, but, but I don't hear about it. What, what do you hear? <laughs> well, I'm pretty good friends with one of my first law clerks who just made partner at a, a, a pretty rigorous law firm who has um, two boys, 
under the age, one is seven, I believe, and one is five, and uh-huh. then a girl three, and she's trying to run her practice at home with the three kids, mm-hmm. and uh, her husband's there to help her. So she's, she's, well, I he's think, there to help her, but maybe he's working at home too. Yes. I, I have yeah. friends who are grandparents who have their, their children in their house and they, my friends are taking care of the grandchildren while the, the two, you know, husband and wife work. So that can be the problem too. I think it's very incredibly, incredibly, <laughs> incredibly challenging. I mean, during, during this podcast, my son is with me and apparently He's got he's got a tick bite and he came in during our conversation to ask me what the doctor's number is. So we're all dealing with these oh no with these, with these distractions. The other the other uh, thing I've heard Judge Rendell it from and mostly from criminal defense attorneys is that business is really really off and down and. Yeah. Um, some firms yeah, they are, can't go into the prison to interview clients. Yeah. You know, certainly their access to their defendants is, is minimal. The public defender in our district who, who you know well, Lee Skipper, he's got a lot of difficult decisions because you, you, you said it exactly right. They don't have ready access to their clients. So mm-hmm. that, that slows the whole process. If a client wants to plead, it's not <sighs> like they can just get on the phone and say, hey, plead. The client has to be talked to and educated as to why the plea is in their best interest. And that's a hard process to do over the phone. And they, yeah, they're, sure. allowed in the, they're only allowed in the prison for limited amounts of time. So the, yeah. the criminal defense bar, I think, is having a very difficult time because they, they don't have access to their clients. Well, it's difficult and uncertainty and fear. Of these We have no understanding or knowledge as to how long it's going to wait. It's just going to get worse before it gets better. Let's hope not. Let's hope it gets better. Uh, and let's hope that it ends soon and we can get back to, but it won't be business as usual. You know, you'll be, you'll be cleaning up this situation in the courts for months, if not years to come. So, well, thanks so much, Judge Goldberg, for being with me. You You're stay welcome. well and yep, safe. You too. Take thanks. care. Mm-hmm. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Judges on Judging, a podcast from the Rendell Center for Civics and Civic Engagement. Information about and resources from the Rendell Center are available online at rendellcenter.org. Thanks for listening.